Atlanta will inbound. He gets it over to the doctor. Time all game. Here's a shot, Julius. He scores! He scores! At the buzzer, and the Nets win. 120 to 118. I think we see Willis coming out. Over to Kidd. Baseline drive. Kidd throws it up. Oh! How did he do it? Randall on the drive. Stripped by Butler. Randall gets it back. Randall puts up a three. Bang! Bang! Randall knocks down the three with seven tenths of a second remaining. With full court press coverage on all of the signings, trades, big games, and everything Knicks, Nets, and across the association, this is Pick and Pod on WFUV Sports. Welcome into Pick and Pod, WFUV Sports' NBA podcast. I'm Chris Persiain, and here alongside Colin Lochran and Joe Masters to talk about the latest in round two of these NBA playoffs. We had a fun round one. We recapped most of it on last week's episode. We're going to let the rest of those series kind of slip out from underneath the coverage of this show, and that's because this round two has been so fantastic. If we had some boring series in round two, I definitely would have looped back to round one and, you know, done takeaways. I I, I honestly just want to get to round two, but before we do any of that, it's a stressful time of year, finals, lots of sports, MLB, NBA, NHL playoffs, how are we doing in our sports lives, and our regular lives, if if that's both for you, if that's the same thing, you know, whatever. I'm doing well, Chris. I mean, I'm a little bit perturbed, so to speak, that I have to wait to see the next Knicks playoff game until Saturday. What a long layover that is. But you're right, really not one snoozer in this entire slate of round two matchups. KD versus Jokic, LeBron versus Steph, Jimmy versus Knicks, and all those guys. I mean, and then... What might be the best matchup, or one of the best matchups that's gone under the radar, Celtics and 76ers, classic Eastern Conference duel, Embiid versus Tatum and company. It's going to be fun to watch. A lot's going to happen down the stretch. I have a feeling we're all going to be surprised by the end of it. Yeah, and usually you feel like there's maybe one <clears throat> like stinker out of all these rounds, but really every one of these feels like either team could win. And it's really exciting for the NBA, for people watching, because I really have no clue on a given night who's going to win. And that's just great as a fan. And then you asked about personally, it is final season. I think everyone is studying, getting ready. Uh, me personally, got an exam in under two hours here, but we're ready to go. I love basketball, so I'm glad to be here to talk it. I feel the same way, Joe. Always glad to be here on Pick and Pod. Colin, I'm going to raise a disagreement with something you said before we get to our first series to Uh-oh. break down. That series is Booker versus Jokic. Man, I I don't think KD's been playing like a he top, has not like a top ten player. not yet. Are you ready to yeah. watch him get swept in the first? It round might happen. For the no, I'm not saying straight? that it won't happen. There's every possibility that he will get swept along with those sons, but Two there's also straight. a chance that he shows us he's got something left in the tank. I'm not ready to completely discount that possibility i think when you know if you have brunson beating mitchell two years straight durant getting swept two years straight at a certain point you got to look at those things and say how worth it is it to go all in for one star if they're not a two-way player this is the conversation a lot of executives are having as well the nba is changing in terms of landscape and in terms of what players are targeted, and why they're targeted. It used to be that you could get one or two guys and form a super team. I mean, look at Miami. You look at what happened in L.A. during the bubble era. That generation of players are all getting older now. KD, LeBron, even Steph, they're on the older side of things. These younger guys are locked into longer contracts. You're seeing depth play a bigger role because of it, and you really need a holistic team to win. Look at what Boston's doing. Not one of those guys... Outside of maybe Tatum well, on a they, good day. They got handed their picks by, by Brooklyn. By Brooklyn, right. So yeah. what, they didn't mortgage their future. Which is, about, which is also about depth because they built pieces around Brown and Tatum that have been able to be fruitful in the playoffs. Them by themselves, maybe not super team material, which is why you're seeing depth play an even bigger role now. Yeah, it's kind of funny that you kind of look at a team like the Nets who made that mistake twice really of 
mortgaging the future for the now, creating this kind of super team builds, this mold. And then it's kind of a warning sign. And then you see the Suns go into it. And now you're seeing why maybe they shouldn't have done that. I mean, obviously, the three-headed monster, Booker, KD, Aiton, uh, it's it's great. But... I think you're missing five teams as part of this case study. Yeah, I mean, obviously. The Bucks sent five first-round picks for Drew Holiday. Yeah. Watching from the couch. The Cavaliers, three first-round picks and Laurie Markkinen. And someone else. Oh, oh, Oche Ogaji, who they just drafted with the first-round pick. So it was basically four first-round picks. I mean, that's that Timberwolves trade. Couch. Oh, the Atlanta Hawks, three unprotected <laughs> first-round picks for DeJounte Murray. Couch. Couch. Yeah. Minnesota Timberwolves, five first-round picks for Rudy Gobert. A-Rod's couch. Say, I was going to say, <laughs> say it with me, folks. The Chicago Bulls, two first-round picks and Wendell Carter for Nikola Vucevic and one first-round pick and Thaddeus Young for the opportunity to pay DeMar DeRozan $30 million a year. Come on. Opportunity. Couch. Cancun. Oh, there it is. So this these playoffs, I think, are – oh, 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 the Los Angeles Clippers, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and a whole horde of picks. And get ready. The Grizzlies are getting a little impatient. I'm worried they might do something similar. So, yeah. we'll see. I mean, they're already on the couch, but I have a feeling they're Pelicans getting a, and Grizzlies. a little impatient. Pelicans, yeah. you know, if you, if you, I think it's funny. I say this to people all the time at the Knicks games. You look at the 2019 draft. Pelicans, Grizzlies, Knicks. And for all the talk that there's been about those three guys that were drafted in so many different ways, those are my three teams to watch for a big star acquisition right now. Pelicans are loaded on first. The Grizzlies have all their future first. Want a little WFUV original reporting? The, they were the team that offered four firsts for McCall at the last deadline because they know that they could use a wing. That's why I'd look out for them for Harrison Barnes. I'd look out for the Kings for OG Ananobi. Um, but New Orleans, Memphis, New York, I think, are the three teams to watch for star acquisitions to pair with those draft picks they got. Even in New York's case, they might be willing to move Barrett for that star, but... I don't know. Maybe Randall would go at, at this point with how the playoffs have gone. I'm not sure. I would really like to see Pascal Siakam go to a championship caliber team. I think that's the Memphis. I think Memphis should be all over him. And a, a Siakam, JJJ frontcourt. The Kings should go after Ananobi. Knicks should wait on Booker. And the Pelicans, if they can use their picks to turn McCullum into Beal, should be all over that. Oh, I'd be all over that too. So, yeah, let's go. Let's do that for sure. All right, Joe, big Brad guy. Um, let's talk about round two of these NBA playoffs because we have an absolute dogfight of a series, Eastern Conference rivalry. You guys know Pat Riley, Jeff Van Gundy, Alonzo Mourning, Pat Ewing, to the days of Pat Riley, Mike Woodson, Carmelo Anthony, LeBron James, to the days of Leon Rose, Pat Riley. <laughs> Jimmy Butler, Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, R.J. Barrett, the Heat Shooters, and Bam Adebayo. Um, the Knicks and Heat have always have always gone toe-to-toe when things get serious in the East, whether in the 90s, whether in the early 2010s, whether in the early 2020s. When things get serious in the East for both of those teams, they find a way to play each other. And guess what? We're at 1-1 after two games. Colin, my fellow Nick Beat reporter, I'm going to go right to you on this one just for your takeaways of how we got to one one or if you'd rather just how you see this going now that we've seen what we've seen. Well, we got to one one because the Knicks let a huge opportunity slip away from them during game one of the series. This should be a two nothing New York series by basically any count. You were up 55 to 50 at the half. At the end of game one, you need to close that one out. You had an even bigger lead, I believe, in the, a part of the third quarter, and the Heat came swarming back. That's a credit to them. Jimmy Butler played phenomenally down the stretch, but more than anything well, else... he played phenomenally down the stretch until he got hurt, right. and then the Knicks didn't attack him on offense, But here, here's the puzzling. kicker. Gabe Vincent started to light it up. Struess started to light it up. Caleb Martin started to light it up. At some point, guys... The carriage is going to turn back into a pumpkin for the Heat, I believe. They were 27th in the NBA in terms of three-point shooting this year. Now, they've turned it on the playoffs. No one's denying that by any stretch. But if they're going to beat the Knicks, I believe it's going to be because Jimmy Butler is going to have another magical run as he did against Milwaukee. I don't believe in these guys to keep it going from behind the arc because let's be honest with ourselves. They didn't have it in the regular season. The pressure is going to be packed on even more so against New York Early in that series against Milwaukee, not so much pressure. You take a series lead. Yes, they still have Giannis. There's pressure to close it out. 
But to one extent or another, there will be more pressure against New York because it's already a tighter fourth series. It's more about the grit and grime. The type of players that New York has brings that out in your opponent. You have Josh Hart, Julius Randle, Mitchell Robinson, not afraid to get in the mud and wrestle you for the basketball at any given moment. I don't think Miami shooters are built to withstand that kind of pressure. That's the key word of the day for me right now is pressure. If New York can play their brand of basketball and not let Miami dictate the pace of the game or the way that the game is played, the Knicks will be fine. With that being said, I think either Game 3 or Game 4 must win. You have to win one game in Miami before you get back to the Garden for a Game 5. That's pivotal. I think Game 3 is the one to win because even assuming that Jimmy Butler plays, he's still a little banged up. you got to imagine that that's still nagging him a little bit. As for Randall, I liked what he gave them in Game 2, 25 points, 11 boards. I've been saying it all year. I'm going to keep saying it until I'm blue in the face. Julius Randle is going to be a big part of this Knicks team. He's been a big part of this Knicks team. He has some magic left in the tank for this postseason run. He's playing hurt. That, that's what leaders do. So that's my two-pronged approach here is make sure you play your own brand of basketball. Don't let Miami dictate the pace. And for Julius Randle, keep doing you. Drive to the basket. Don't settle for lame jump shots. Be the guy that you know you are which also opens up opportunities for Brunson, Barrett, and others to make big contributions. I see this series going the Knicks' way. It's not going to be easy because Miami's filled with guys that are gutsy like Jimmy Butler. But in terms of those shooters, that's not going to be what kills them, in my estimation. Yeah, Joe, what do you think now heading to Miami is the biggest key for these Knicks if they want to go take a game on the road the way the Heat did at MSG? Well, I definitely think it's shooting and it's bench production. I mean, you saw that second half of the season, the stretch. The Knicks feed it off Quentin Grimes, Emmanuel quickly heating up down the stretch, kind of carrying them to that playoffs. They gave them that extra boost to get there and get really hot towards the end of the season. And then last series against the Cavs, let's be honest, the Knicks shot horribly from three. And the Cavs were just inexperienced and shot worse. I mean, Jared Allen literally said the lights were too bright. And when you look towards this series with the Heat, Colin, you mentioned pressure. I think... That's the Heat's M.O. They kind of live off pressure. They just showed that in round one, beating the number one seed, probably the favorite to go to the finals, Bucks, and they beat them in five games. So I don't think the Heat are afraid of anything. I don't think they're afraid of the moment. I don't think they're afraid of any type of pressure. Eric Spolstra is probably, probably the best coach in basketball, especially the last decade. I mean, obviously Popovich, but definitely in the East. I don't know. I think the Heat feed off this pressure. And I don't think the lights are going to be too bright like they were for the Cavs. And then from the Knicks' perspective, I think they just need to shoot the three better. And it's going to be a dogfight. We've talked about that. We'll continue to talk about the rest of the series. So I see this going seven. And obviously the Knicks are going to have that home court advantage. That's a big part of it. But if Jimmy Butler's healthy, it's a scary series for me for the Knicks. Yeah, I I think um, the the narrative that the Knicks didn't win round one, that Cleveland lost it is like what we're seeing national and beat writers do to make up for and justify the fact that they picked Cleveland to win the series so like now they have to justify that on the back end and like make something up to make it make sense um you know the Knicks and I talked about this with Colin on on the pick and pod before the playoffs even started The Cavaliers were 30th in the NBA in rebounding from the All-Star break to the end of the year. Mitchell Robinson killed them on the rebounds, and everyone was like, oh, who's this guy Mitchell Robinson that's killing the Cavaliers? How could the Cavaliers be getting killed on the rebounds? It's like, yeah, well, the Knicks were the first best rebounding team in the league from the All-Star break and on, and the Cavaliers were the worst, 30th. That's that's the disparity, right? So when the Knicks beat the Cavaliers down by getting so many extra possessions and grinding them down— Using the whole 24-second shot clock, Jalen Brunson misses a three, Josh Hart offensive rebound. Out to Randall, he drives it in, out to Barrett for three, Isaiah Hartenstein offensive rebound. Back out to Brunson for three, cash. 45 seconds off the shot clock, and the score is New York three, Cleveland zero. The Knicks grinded down the Cavaliers with their ground-and-pound style, and I don't agree with the notion at all that the Cavaliers just lost the series. Like They shot poorly from three because the Knicks made them. The Knicks left Okoro open on purpose. They left Stevens open on purpose, and they funneled the ball to these poor shooters in the corners. This is a tactic. This is a strategy. I remember in 2020, um, or tw- sorry, the COVID year, you know, the 2021, 
when the Knicks had the worst opponent three-point percentage in the league and all the writers were like, well, they're just getting lucky. And it was like, no, that's that's the plan. Like, that's why they play how they play is to force that number. You know, I, I just think people, like, don't – I'm not saying you, but, like, people no, yeah, like, don't, 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 get me wrong. I, don't I, watch the games and they just look at the stats and they're like, oh, I know what happened. It's this. And when you're someone – who watches the team throughout the course of a season, like you understand things like, oh, like the Kings were really good on the road all season. Should not have shocked people that they won games in the Chase Center, yeah. right? Like I, I just think the playoffs is where people kind of like tell on themselves. That's a rant. Anyways, um, for round two against Miami, I just think I'll say it like this. Um, you know, my coworker at, at Knicks Film School, Benji Ridholtz, is like really, really good at, dissecting film and you know he he coaches d3 so you know like he's really good at, at film dissection and, and breakdowns and he had a line that i loved when he was talking about this series he said uh jimmy butler thrives on junk like he thrives on the crap points for a better you know for lack of a better technical term um it's in those margins that he kills you he will get the ball out from your hands and go score it down the other way he will hang in the air just one second longer than you were expecting and flip up the layup. That's what he did against the Bucks. Yeah, he will get the jumper right over you, even though he's only six 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 seven. Like, he thrives on those junk points that end up just beating other teams down. And I think that Miami knows this, and so they want this game to get in a shootout. And like Colin was saying, the Knicks are letting the Heat dictate how the game goes. They're engaging in the shootout. If you saw game one, the Knicks were up at the half, like Colin said. Why? Because they had over 40 points in the paint in the first half. They were dominating the painted area. And in the second half, Miami said, hey, guys, come join us at the shooting, you know, at, at, the, at this shootout that we're going to do. Let's, let's lob up 53s together. And the Knicks were like, oh, okay. You know, like they lost the game because of that. Game two, Miami didn't have Butler, so the game plan was the same. Shoot the heck out of the ball. Get it to Bam inside every once in a while, but you want Struess, Vincent, Robinson, Lowry taking threes, and that's a good play if it ends in an open three. That's what they did. They shot like 53s for the game, right? But they lost because the Knicks stuck to their ground-and-pound style. They kept getting offensive rebounds. They kept dominating the glass on the defensive end of the ball. They kept getting stops at the rim. They passed the ball intelligently. The Knicks are not a high-assist team, but they do take smart shots. They continued to do that. They got tough shot making out of Randall and Brunson, the guys who have taken them across that finish line all year. Barrett had a good game in the first half. Jalen Brunson, you know, more of a scorer than a facilitator. He didn't really keep Barrett going in the second half. Barrett went cold. Thibodeau benched him, took him out for Hart, because if Hart goes cold, he's giving you other things. Now, is it on the team that Barrett was cold in the second half? I think so. Um, because if you are a point guard, it is your duty to keep guys going. Set them up in their spots. Uh, that's what set. The, that's what was the difference last season when Randall was in, versus with Randall with quickly because quickly would set him up in his spots, and that's when we saw what Randall could be if he consistently played with the point guard like Brunson. That's why I think the Knicks made that investment because they knew that Randall could be different with a point guard setting him up, and Brunson did set Randall up in his spots, and Randall got a really tough offensive rebound at the end of game two, but. They didn't really set Barrett up as much. And so because Barrett doesn't give you great defense when he's not hot scoring, they took him out of the game. And the Knicks won because of that decision. Um, and I think that speaks to the depth that they have, that they have seven guys that they trust. Oh, my. Is it more? Wait. Brunson, Grimes, Hart, Barrett, Quickly, Randall, Robinson, Hartenstein. They have eight guys out of their nine that they trust to close a game. Toppin is the only one that Thibodeau probably wouldn't want to close a game with. But if Tom Thibodeau, the guy who plays his stars 40-plus minutes in the playoffs, the guy who played Josh Hart 42 minutes in Game 1, has eight guys that he's willing to start or willing to close with, you have a very deep team. And that's what the Knicks need to lean on in Game 2, is not being afraid to play Hartenstein over Robinson because he matches up better against Miami. Not being afraid to play Grimes over Hart because his shooting helps them match up better against Miami. Not being afraid to take Barrett out down the stretch. Decisions like that will win them this series, and that's why I think the Knicks will win the series because Thibodeau made these necessary adjustments against Cleveland. I think he'll do it again. Well, the also other thing that you mentioned there, Emmanuel quickly played nine minutes. You mentioned his name. He only played nine minutes in game two. Six points. 
you gotta imagine he's gonna have to give them more down the stretch of this series off the bench as he has throughout the course of the year. For some reason, he looks timid when he's shooting. He's not driving with as much authority as he did during the regular campaign. You need more at Emmanuel quickly because that's part of the Knicks' strength over the Heat is that they have a great amount of depth that can score off the bench. People like Hart. People like quickly. I mean, I'm assuming, of course, that Hart will come off the bench for a number of these games here. That's going to have to play a critical role for New York. I like quickly to bounce back, but I don't think it's going to be an easy process. Like, I don't think he flips the switch in a matter of one game because I think this is maybe more of a mental thing. No, it's, it's a else. confidence thing for sure. I think maybe by like game five of this series, you're seeing a little bit more of what quickly is supposed to be and what he has been, but he's got to get there first. It's going to take a little bit of time. Knicks fans have to be patient, and Thibodeau has to give him a little bit longer of a leash, in my estimation, because he gives you great defense in the perimeter. Against a team like Miami that, as you said, Chris, is trying to play by their own pace, shoot the ball and bank on the fact that they're going to get hot from behind the arc, having someone like Quickly with that big wingspan and ability to swarm out there and really contest shots, huge. That can make the difference in terms of you know points here and there and one-point game, two-point game. You want your best perimeter defenders out there, and if Quickly gives you scoring on the bench, even better. Yeah, I tweeted that during game two and and – you know, people who follow the coverage were were in pretty large disagreement, saying, you know, quickly he's not making shots, he shouldn't be on the court. He's not scoring, he shouldn't play. And I understand the frustration. If a player can't get the ball to go in the basket, you want them to get the ball to go in the basket, and you're upset about it. Okay, right? But you can't be so reductive or minimalistic about the game of basketball. There's multiple columns in the stat sheet for a reason. You can't pick one that you think matters the most and determine everything based off of that. Now, does your philosophy about if shots not going in, I'm not saying you, like the general you, if it does the philosophy of shot, if shots aren't going in, then they shouldn't play, apply to guys like Barrett and Toppin who don't notoriously give you defense or reliable shooting? Sure. But Toppin went four for 11 from three in game one. You know, like he can shoot the ball. So even then, I'm not a fan of it, but quickly brings the defense, as Colin was talking about, as, as Colin and I have discussed all season. 6'3 with the 6'9 wingspan, great instincts, great fire and desire to defend. He wants to get breakups. He wants to uh, get steals, block shots, you know, and, and he's really good at that. So the Knicks, again, shouldn't be afraid to lean into that depth that they have. Um, if for no other reason than to make sure that guys like Josh Hart aren't playing 42 minutes a game. Yeah, I thought I saw a little bit of it from quickly. I know you guys are talking about how it's a confidence thing. He had a little burst there in the second quarter or the he second did. game where he kind of yep. had back-to-back buckets there where you're thinking maybe like, all right, here we go. This is going to get him going. So hopefully for quickly that can kind of be a, a launching off performance from him. Um, but this bench, yeah, is really going to need to step up. And I like how you brought up that people who just stat sheet watch really won't know the impact of some of these guys. <clears throat> but a guy like quickly, defense and energy, I feel like. I feel like when he's on the court, this Knicks team is a little bit more has a little bit more pep in their step. He brings some of that youthful energy, gives you good defense, even if he's not donking down the shots. But like we saw in the regular season, if he is making shots, attacking the basket like he did in TD Garden, what people would say the fake Garden in the regular season, that big win against the Celtics, he just took over that game. If they can get just a fraction of that quickly, the rest of the series, in addition to maybe a better performance overall from Grimes, only six shots this series, it could be huge for the Knicks. Yeah, so moving on in the Eastern Conference, as Colin was saying earlier, we got a great series between Boston and Philadelphia. Um, I could talk about the Knicks versus the Heat for another 10 minutes, but we got some really great other series to get to as well. So between Boston and Philly, I, I kind of wanted to start out and and get a takeoff here and then you know let you guys respond or counter whatever it is. Philadelphia's game one was great. Might have been James Harden's best playoff performance ever. Don't think that's hyperbole. Um, but Boston showed in game two exactly why it's so easy to still have Boston to win the series after that Philly game one. And it's because they have more talent in a well-rounded regard. You know, um, I saw a tweet yesterday and it was like, the Celtics are so good when Grant Williams is playing well. And I'm like, okay, like that. <laughs> yeah. Great, great stuff there. Right? Like the Knicks are so good when Emmanuel quickly is playing. Yeah, obviously. Right. But the thing is that Boston has so many players that do affect them like that. Because if Williams is hot, then the floor gets spaced differently. And then their other guys have more room to work. Smart and White can get screens and get to the basket. 
when normally they wouldn't be able to do that in a crowded defense. You know, I, I just think that they have so many different looks to throw at you. Um, I would not be surprised if the Celtics make it to the finals. You know, I think Philly, if they want a fighting chance in this series, has to get back to and stick to the formula of Harden being the primary initiator and the second scoring option, Embiid being the first scoring option and the defensive anchor, Maxi being the third scoring option or the bench gunner, the first scoring option off the bench, Harris being the fourth scoring option or Maxi's second option in the bench unit. Stagger those lineups. Make sure Harden and Embiid are playing together, yes, but make sure that Maxi and Harris get minutes with Harden. Make sure that Jalen McDaniels and Melton get minutes with Embiid, right? Stagger these lineups intelligently, Doc Rivers, and you will understand and learn that you've got like three good teams in one over there in Philly. You take a look at what Denver is doing. They got their Murray, Porter, Gordon, Bruce Brown, Thomas Bryant lineup, right? But then they've also got their uh, Brown, KCP, um, Gordon, another shooter out there, and Jokic lineup. They stagger those two creators, and they allow them to, to thrive off each other. Jokic as an initiator, Murray as a scorer. But then also for Murray to thrive as an initiator with that bench unit. And, and you just you watch these teams utilize their depth intelligently, and you think you wish Philly did a lot more of that against a team like Boston where they really need to have their best fight out there 48 minutes a game. Chris, you know I've been concerned about this Celtics team all season long. I have not necessarily bought into the hype after last year's finals run. I believe that team was a much different team in terms of mentality and hunger to get to the finals in the first place. I think Ime Udoka had something to do with that. And regardless of your feelings about Udoka at the moment, one can't deny the type of coach he was for them last year. I don't think Missoula brings that same passion and grit, albeit how good he's been on defense for Boston. I'm very concerned about the Celtics in this series because Celtics won in game two by a wide margin. James Harden shot two of 14 from the field. Maxi 6 of 14, and Bede only took 9 shots and put up 15 points. Do you really think that's going to happen again? I don't. I think those three guys are going to be phenomenal down the stretch of this series. And more to the point, Game Three's in Philly. That's right up there with Boston as one of the most hostile environments in the NBA. New York, Philly, Boston, a packed Staples Center or cryptocurrency. It doesn't get... Golden one. Right. That too. It doesn't get that much more exciting. Not to mention, Embiid just brought home his MVP. When they announced Joel Embiid as the MVP in Game 3, that place is going to go nuts. I wouldn't want to be a Celtics player in that environment, and I haven't seen the camaraderie of the Celtics team that I saw last year. I know it's basically the same group of guys. It might sound silly of me, this, of me to say this. I think they've gotten a little bit too big for their britches this year. I think the idea is that they're supposed to waltz into the finals and finish their business. The warm-up t-shirt says, unfinished business. They're going to win the title this year. It's a given. No, it's not a given. you got to get through Philly first, and they're a scary team. They've got all-stars up and down their lineup, and the sleeper for me is Tyrese Maxey. That guy is special when he's on the court. He can shoot. He can drive. I don't want to deal with him in transition. I don't want to have to get in front of him in transition because he'll make me look silly. He makes that little Euro step to the hoop, easy two points. Then you got to deal with Embiid in the half court. That's no fun, even for a Celtics defense that has been very good throughout the course of the last two years. This is not a given that Boston's winning this series. They've got a great arsenal of weapons, and when they're firing on all cylinders from three-point land, they're great. But if that doesn't happen, Philly's in prime position to make an upset happen and steal this series. I'm not as concerned with the Celtics as maybe you are. I think I think game one was really just a case of them kind of getting away from what made them so good, and that is shooting those threes and making those threes. They only shot 26 in game one compared to the 42 they averaged throughout the season, and they outscored their opponents by 13 per game in that, in that mark. And <clears throat> they didn't really do it in game one. And you saw in right at the tip-off, right, the jump of game two. Jalen Brown three, I believe, and Al Horford three. They got right back into their groove, how they play basketball, and they blew them out of the water. And this is with Jason Tatum scoring seven points. So 
I'm not as concerned with the Celtics. I think sometimes when you get in the playoffs, some of these teams, and I do agree it's a different team than what it was last year, some of these teams, if they're inexperienced or nervous, angsty, they might try to get away from what has made them so good. They try to play a different brand of basketball, and I think that's what happened in Game 1. They played a, a different 76ers team with no Joel Embiid, more of a team environment, a different number one option in James Harden. And they didn't shoot as many threes, and they got away from what makes them so good. And then they went back to it, and you saw what happened. And then when I look at the Sixers, I think it's just, Chris, like you talked about, finding a way to mesh on the offensive side of the floor. I mean, James Harden's a great player, and you saw that he still has that Houston James Harden in him in Game 1. Yep. But I feel like it's he's been the man for so long, I feel like it's difficult for him to kind of play this complementary role to Joel Embiid. And it gets him off of his stride and his confidence and how he plays the game so well, which is just being a takeover player. And I think the Sixers need to find that mix because if they can get a more consistent, I'm not saying like 40 points a game like they got game one, but a more consistent version of James Harden, it's going to be a hard team to beat. But we've seen it for a while now, especially in the playoffs last year. James Harden has some challenges. I think he has some flaws when he's playing with a dominant player like Embiid and a big at that. Yeah, I th- I think that Philly has all the firepower. Does it fit together how they need it to? You know, will it? I think Harden has that complementary vibe in him. Like, it's just in a playoff setting, if you need a bucket, like, he's going to go get it. And, and... I just think Philly needs to start looking at things in terms of what their guys can do and how to optimize them. You know, get those two going in their own way. Get Harden scoring with the bench unit. Get Embiid scoring with the starters, right? Make those two shine. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, A lot of all the good teams stagger their stars, you know. So Philly has just got to look into that more than than they are now. and I think I think James Harden is probably the alpha male of all alpha males when it comes to being on the basketball court. I think you get a different James Harden when you're telling him, all right, it's your game, it's your team, go out there, lead us, versus, well, you know, Embiid's feeling it, he's going to get the last shot, it depends. Like I feel like you're just getting a different type of player. And in Houston, he was that guy, and he was, in my opinion, one of the most unstoppable players at that time that we've seen in a while. I mean, it was just a different well, type of player. Yeah, he was unstoppable until the second round of the playoffs. <laughs> well, they, that, I, I, <laughs> then he was very stoppable. Well, injuries also kind of yeah. Chris up Paul, that. Chris Paul got hurt that one year. That was bad. and they was, couldn't make a three. Bad. Yeah, that was yeah. that was bad. Um, <laughs> but that also just shows, you know, the three pointer is a high variance shot, right? So you're going to have games where you make 20 out of 27 and you go really hot and you're going to have games where you go over oh, for 27, like in that stretch that they had, you know? So um, that's why I like this new style of play from James Harden. It's less volatile. There's less variety to it. The option tree isn't as branchulous. It, 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 it's, it's a Stephen A. Smith word. It's, right it's, a, it's a thinner tree, right? It, you you know what you're getting out of that offense. I think yeah. Harden needs to focus on the playmaking and, and be the second scoring option. They're going to be good to go. Like they can make this a series. Um, yeah, let's go out west. I think talking about staggering stars, Denver. You know that's the perfect series to go to next. Um, I was here on Pick and Pod last week with with Colin, and and I talked about how I had Denver in seven because I I did not think that despite having KD and Booker that the Suns had the guys three through nine to really keep up with Denver. And you're seeing now, you know, Phoenix, Terrence Ross is not getting major minutes, right? Like that that buyout didn't save their season. Um, like a lot of people said it would. It, it, he's really barely playing. Uh, guys like Jock Landale, these guys just don't exist in the playoff context of this team. And so they're relying on KD to play 44 minutes a game. He's playing 42 to 44 minutes every single game. There was one game this playoffs where he's played less than 40, I think. That's nuts, right? Like, Booker's been the best player on that team. He's been a top-five player in the league in these playoffs. Booker has been a top-five player in these playoffs so far. Uh, if you want to extend it to six, maybe Brunson squeaks in there, but in the top five, you know, Booker's up there for me. And... 
they're losing. They're losing because Denver's got the depth to deal with them. Colin, is this series savable for Phoenix? I think so, but it's going to take a Herculean effort from Durant and Booker going forward. Those are the two guys that I would most uh, pin this on because you're right. They don't have the type of depth that Denver has. No one is claiming that they do. Aiton is another interesting case because he's going to have to deal with Jokic, which is pretty much impossible. She hasn't. He hasn't lived up to that matchup. Right. Yet. I don't. He's I don't think. Well. well, you know what? That's not really a knock on Aiton. I think that's just more about how good Jokic is. I mean, it's, it's b- true. As people say, it's boring basketball in the air quotes there, but it's effective basketball. Jokic just does the little things right. He's not trying to be too flashy out there. Although he has some flash to his game from time to time, but. Yeah, that's that's not a winnable matchup for Aiton necessarily. So I'm really pinning this on um, Booker and Durant to do something special down the stretch of the series. You know how I feel about Kevin Durant, Chris. We've talked about it multiple times. I think when healthy, he is the best player on the planet. Uh, I know that you know now guys like Giannis supersede that in terms of physicality. I wouldn't pretend to discount that. This series, to me, comes down to those two guys. And also, can the Nuggets keep up the way they've been playing? Because you never know when someone has a bad night, and you never know when a bad night leaks into a bad stretch. And a bad stretch, then you're looking at a six- or seven-game series that could go Phoenix's way. I will say, however, if the Suns are going to win this series, it's got to be four in a row. I don't think they're winning in seven, because I don't think they're going to have to go back to Denver to win a game seven, if that makes sense. So I see this as Denver's series to lose if the Suns put up a great fight in game three. Say you get a vintage performance from Kevin Durant, then you got a series on your hand. But if Denver goes up 3-0, this one's over. Yeah, and I think that when I mentioned DeAndre Ayton versus Jokic, I'm not asking Ayton to go out there and put up the same stat line as Jokic because that's just not the player he is. But he, he's getting dominated on the, on the, on the glass. He's, DeAndre Ayton has grabbed 13.7% of possible rebounds compared to Jokic, who has an astonishing number of 27.1%. And... Of course, DeAndre Ayton's not going to score the points that Booker and KD are going to give you, but he has to be a little bit more physical in the glass. I know I saw some clip of him where he was kind of just standing on the basket as Jokic just repeatedly grabbed rebounds, put up second, third, fourth yeah, chances. I'm, I'm not sure if the quote on that is real, um, but the quote that I saw was, I'm not sure what you want me to do right there. I think I saw that too. I yeah, mean, that I don't was know. that was from a, an award winner covering the Suns for AZ Central. So I think it's real. Yeah, yeah it seems real. Uh, so <laughs> that's not what you want to see out of a, or what you want to hear, or hear out of a seven foot big with a seven six wingspan going. Big. I know it's going to be a tough task against Jokic, but guess what? This is the playoffs. You can't be afraid of these guys just because you're going up against a two time MVP. You got to be more physically to be tougher than him and. Uh, we haven't seen that, and that's why they're down 0-2. But you also mentioned Colin, you know, having off nights and, you know, getting hot, getting cold. But one of the this Nuggets team is one of the only teams I think are not immune to it, but more immune than other teams because of how deep they are, of how, oh, if it's not Jokic's night, it could be Murray's. And if it's not Murray's, you could go to the bench, KCP, Bruce Brown. You know, you have so many options that have been so good this series that you don't need to rely on one guy to get you so many buckets like the Suns are doing because they have literally no one else outside of Booker and KD. And Aiton can give you, I mean, 14 back-to-back games. That seems like it's, it's his cap this series. He's going to give you 14-7, and seven, literally. 14-8 and eight, game two, 14-7 game one. So you really have no threats other than those two main guys that put the ball in the basket. You know, the Nuggets just have too many to deal with for any team, really. So I think it just it's just an interesting matchup between a team who relies on their depth, has built by just building up this team of talent, depth, bench scoring, versus a team who traded it all away to get this big three, and now one of them's hurt, and they have no other options outside of the big two, and one of them's playing kind of mad, and the other one's playing yeah, amazing. Durant, Durant's not playing well. Yeah, he's he has not been a top-five player in these playoffs. This is the second year in a row that KD has not been a top-five player in the playoffs. He's not taking over. When can we have the discourse? You know, like I'm this off season. Let's get back on pick and pod. And when I'm gonna make one of this summer's episodes, who are the top five players in the NBA? And I'm gonna have guys like Jimmy Butler and Devin Booker over guys like Kevin Durant and Luka Doncic, because I'm not at a point where I can continue justifying 
disappearing in the playoffs or not even making them because they put up fun numbers in the regular season. You know, like at what point it's a, it's a yearly cycle. Oh, is Jimmy Butler even top 10? Oh, the Heat aren't that good. Oh, this and this. Oh my god, Jimmy Butler might be top 5. Where did this come from? Playoff Jimmy. Like, let's cut it, you know? Like, let's just be honest about this discourse. Luka can't play off the ball. The Grizzlies don't have wing talent, right? Like these teams have real flaws that like are like taboo. You know, there's a reason why teams like the Warriors, teams like the Heat keep rising to the top. The Heat just made the Eastern Conference Finals again, right? Like, and then ugh, they almost made the Eastern Conference Finals. Or sorry, they were a Jimmy made three away from maybe going to the finals for the second time in the last like two, two, three yeah, that years. Tr- that transition pull up three. Yeah, yeah, it was a good shot. He just it was missed a good it. Shot, um, yeah. Remember, they were in the finals against the Lakers, and if they had won. That series, they would have been in the finals for the second time. This would have been their third nice playoff run. Like, that team's really good. Jimmy Butler went there to live in Florida and focus on winning, and that is all they've been doing in Miami, you know? So um, I think there's, like, a real discourse to be had about playoff risers and playoff fallers. Uh, for so long, people, DeMar DeRozan, this, this, that, and then the playoffs would come around, it's like, oh, that's why he's not top five. Uh, you know, like, let, let's start these conversations earlier in the year. Let's be honest about what, what we're looking at. Um, guys like AD, you know. That's a big one. The availability is everything with Anthony Davis. And Even now you're seeing, court, not to spoil what we're talking about too, it's the wear and tear aspect of things. Not to spoil no, how that, I'm going to come that's, back. That's the pivot to the series because <laughs> that is the yeah. final series that we have to talk about here on Pick and Pod. I want to get into it. It's LeBron versus Steph. It's AD versus Draymond. It's Austin Reeves and Rui Hachimura versus Clay Thompson. It's uh, Kevon Looney versus Tristan Thompson. Um, seriously, though, this is an amazing series. Uh, I, I tweeted about this when when it was confirmed that this would be the series. Like, I remember having to explain to my parents, like, yes, it's LeBron versus Steph again. Yes, mom, and yeah, I, yeah, I'm gonna watch it again. Yeah, yes, it's the fourth straight year of LeBron versus. The, I know, ma, but mom, it's gonna be a good. And now it's like, oh my god, I can't wait. We're getting LeBron versus Steph again. <laughs> like, this could be the last time we see these two face off in a playoff series, right? LeBron's now been in L.A. for longer than he was in Miami. Whoa, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, it does not feel like that at all. It does That's not. Crazy. Miami, four years. This is year five in L.A. How about that? So basically. Just how are you guys feeling about this series? How I think it's awesome. How do you feel about it? I, I, I will get into X's and O's, but first let's do a little relishing and storylines here. What is this like for you guys? I'm feeling nostalgic, as you are, Chris, and I'm sure you are too as well, Joe, because for the longest time we complained, we moaned, we groaned about, oh, we got to watch LeBron versus Curry again, and then we didn't have it for a little while, and then we all went, no, no, can we please get it again? We got a little bit of a sneak preview at the play-in game, in the 2021 playoffs, but not really the full extent of what it was when it was Cavs-Warriors each and every year, a full seven-game bout out there. But now we got it again, so I'm feeling nostalgic. In terms of the series, Chris, this is a war of attrition for the Lakers because their two stars are either on the older end, like LeBron, or just not durable at all, Anthony Davis. It's going to be a matter of can those guys play the amount of minutes that they're going to be asked to play throughout the course of this series and do so at a high level. I think Game 2 is an example of the Warriors just playing a different style of basketball than L.A. is trying to play, and it's more beneficial over the course of a long series because they have shooters. They don't need to really grind and gut out every single basket. If the Lakers want to combat that, they're going to need guys like Austin Reeves to step up. He was not good at all last night in Game 2. And the other guy who I want to give special praise to, Rui Hachimura. He always gives a great effort for the Lakers. Charles Barkley, I'm sorry. You need to know who this man is. <laughs> 21 points in game two. He's been phenomenal throughout the playoffs. I would not be surprised if his minutes skyrocket towards the latter part of this series because of what he's able to offer. He's not the most physical guy in the world, but he's more durable than Anthony Davis. And if you need him to get some cheap buckets, he can do that for you. So L.A. is just going to have to hope that they get contributions from people that are not named Anthony Davis or LeBron James if they want to win this series because the Warriors are playing their style of basketball. They're moving off the ball. 
They're making open threes. People like Draymond and Poole are having contributions as well throughout the course of the game. So, in my mind, war of attrition for L.A., Warriors have to play their style of basketball and not let L.A. get those contributions from role players like Hachimura, Reeves, or Lonnie Walker. Yeah, and I think we've realized two things here in the last couple games. Basketball is great when LeBron and Curry are in the playoffs, but basketball is amazing when they're playing each other in the playoffs. I mean, it's just, oh my God, the nostalgia and just the current, like, atmosphere the buildup it's just two players who are so like awesome in their own right but when they're playing against each other it just floods back all these memories and they're still going they're still even like they're still playing as well as they were in their prime it's just amazing it's not like one of those things in sports where it's like oh like the 40 year old you know veteran is it's like an old matchup of guys who used to go at it in their prime like these players are still playing at the top of their game top of the league it's it's just awesome to see but the way I look at this series and the way I look at the Lakers is that the Lakers go where AD goes. And that's not even to say if he plays. It's how he plays on the court. Game one, he was locked in. 30-23. and 23. Spectacular. You saw the result. They win. Game two, he had four points at half. They get blown out. I mean, it's pretty... It's the, you know, the proof's in the pudding there when you look at it. I mean, the Lakers go where Anthony Davis goes. And sometimes it feels like he's taking over the game he's the best player on the court top five player in the world when you're watching AD on the court on both sides of the floor just you saw why he was number one pick he's spectacular and then other times he's invisible you're like where's AD oh he's in the corner he's doing nothing oh he's weakly posting up and kicking it back out he's not really doing anything if AD is locked in this defense is locked in the Lakers are a championship caliber team if they have the right Anthony Davis on a game-to-game basis. But then you look at it from the Warriors' perspective, they won this game, too, because of the adjustments Steve Kerr made. He took out Looney, put in Jermichael Green, spacing was better, and it was a track meet, and the Warriors are all-time the best at doing that. And you saw a result. So it's going to be a really interesting series, for sure. And it's just I'm really just watching, to be honest, Anthony Davis. If I tune into Game 3 and he's scoring at will, blocking shots, I could see this series going in the in the way in the favor of the Lakers, but if it's the other way around, the Warriors are the better team. Well, you know what's scary too about that Warriors win? They got 20 points only from Steph Curry, 12 assists though. Thompson with the 30 burger. Yeah. That was not on my bingo card necessarily for Klay Thompson in this series because he's not the same type of player he once was. Still very effective, but if he's going to do something close to that here, which he very well could because as you said, Joe, the Warriors are all about spacing. That's yeah. not the game that the Lakers are trying to play, especially not against the Dubs. So if Thompson can give them that, Lakers are in a scary position. And they didn't get the best performance out of Wiggins in this one. He played 30 minutes, only shot 3 of 8 from the field, put up 11 points. So this was not the Warriors' strongest game by any stretch. The problem was the Lakers were just worse overall. The efficiency from Austin Reeves, as I mentioned, was not there. 3 of 11 from the field. LeBron had a quieter night as quiet as LeBron could possibly be 10 of 18 from the field 23 points overall this is going to come down to who's going to dictate the pace of the game I see this the same way I see the Knicks and Heat series in some respects in the sense that you need to be able to play at your level you can't let the other team determine how you go about your business on the court so if the Warriors are going to be able to play their brand of basketball which in game two they certainly were they should be favored to win. But if the Lakers can get those outside contributions, they're going to put up a fight. Yeah, and another thing, look at what the the Warriors just had to go through in the Kings. How many adjustments Steve Kerr had to make. How much pressure the Warriors were under that entire series. I mean, probably the most tense for an opposing team to go into Golden 1 Center. I mean, And that was about experience. I had said it on yeah. Pick and Pot a couple weeks ago, and you know, it was not a popular take at the time. I picked the Warriors to win in either six or seven games because of experience. Mm-hmm. I fully understand the Kings were probably, well, no, they were the younger team, and they might have been the more dynamic team this year. Faster, it, faster, right? Yeah. Well, best offensive rating in the league, if I'm not mistaken. But the Warriors have the type of experience that matters in the playoffs. And when you got guys like Curry, Draymond, and Thompson who've been around the block, that can make all the difference. And, and Steph said it, it's a completely different series. With the, with, when they were playing the Kings, it would be you miss a shot, you got to get back because Kings are going to be coming immediately down the court faster than you can blink. De'Aaron Fox 
already has a layup before you can even turn around. And then you go to play the Lakers, and it's a much slower game. It's much more defense-oriented. So it's a completely different type of series, a different type of matchup. But Steve Kerr has shown, once again, his his willingness to make adjustments and the success of those adjustments. So I'm not really concerned when it comes to the Warriors. I hear you guys. I think that the Warriors have what it takes to get firing on all cylinders and just close things out from here. But we do have a 1-1 series now. You You guys know what I always say, a playoff series doesn't start until a team steals one on the road. And Miami started the series early. (laughs) Miami started that series very early. Um, But the Lakers started their series early too. The, The Sixers started their series early with a road win. All of these... All of these series have started early by my book. You know, like this is an early quote unquote like start. Um, and that's the best kind of basketball is when you've got teams 1 1 after two games because now it's a fresh series again. But each team has played their first hand of cards. Now it's time to show what you've got up your sleeve. And this to me is like the best part of the tango that NBA coaches do. This is the. <laughs> solo of the performance for these coaches because if you can coach in the playoffs you have a second hand and a third hand you're not reaching for tricks and that's why I do think the Knicks will win against the Heat because I think the Heat have started the series with tricks I think they, they I think they know everyone knows their hand is Jimmy Butler they played it last round they had to start this series with the trick up the sleeve in the three-point barrage is that sustainable, like Colin said? Don't know. But we'll see. We've got great basketball coming up. You'll have Colin Lochran reporting at your next Nick playoff home game, which will be game five. Knicks took care of business early in round one. So did Miami. So they get a lot of rest between games two and three. Tomorrow, Saturday, will be game three of that series. You can expect that we will have you covered, as always, here on Pick and Pod. I'm Chris Persianen. I've got Colin Lochran and Joe Masters alongside with me. Colin and I will keep you covered from Madison Square Garden, and the whole Pick and Pod crew will keep you covered here from our studios in the Bronx. Pick and Pod is a production of WFUV Sports. Thanks for tuning in.